the men's prayer breakfast is going to be two weeks from this Saturday on May the 19th. Uh, men's prayer breakfast and deacons meeting that morning. Um, so we need to be in preparation for that. Second thing is that we need to be in prayer for um, the family of uh, Don Stark. I mean Don Tapping. Don Tapping uh, is the son of Catherine Tapping, Katie Tapping. Many of you know Katie from from many years back. And uh, her son uh, went to be with the Lord Wednesday, yesterday afternoon. And the memorial service will be on Saturday morning, May the 12th, here at West Houston Bible Church at 11 a.m. Don was my age. We were in Sunday school together. That's the second, this will be the second funeral or memorial service I've done in two months with someone I grew up with in Sunday school. I don't want this to be a trend. So that is, uh, we need to be in prayer for the family and um, for that service because there will be a number of people at the service who need to hear the gospel. Uh, He was a believer. He is face-to-face with the Lord. Also, we need to be in prayer for the congregation. There's a lot of people who are sick. There are some people who are seriously ill and maybe on on the threshold of eternity. And we have others who are just fighting, still fighting various maladies from viruses that went around in the winter. And so we need to be in prayer for these folks. And um, uh, we need to be continue to pray for uh, Billy John Westfall and her recovery, as well as others that we know of that are on the sick list. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. I hope and pray that today you have enjoyed your uh, walk with the Lord, your fellowship with the Lord as you have served the Lord in whatever capacity, your your work or whatever endeavors you've been involved in today, and that uh, this time tonight will be a time to challenge you as well as to refresh you in your spiritual walk. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we are properly related to the Lord, uh, confess sin if necessary. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for another day to serve you, another day to glorify you in this life, another day to grow and mature as a believer, to study your word, to to learn it, to assimilate it, to have our our, our minds uh, conform to your word and not conform to the world, that God the Holy Spirit would take your word and transform us uh, from uh, day to day, from faith to faith as we grow and mature. Father, we pray for this congregation. There's a lot of folks, too many to name, who are, some are facing just ongoing problems, some are facing serious life-threatening problems, some may be close to uh, the threshold of heaven, others are just facing ongoing uh, sickness or illness that they can't quite kick. Father, we pray for them. We pray that they can relax. We pray you will heal them. We pray that they can use the time to uh, rest, read the Word, study the Word, focus on you. We pray that you would give us a, a vision for why and how things happen to us each day, that 
perhaps you have a plan and a purpose in these things and that we are to use that to uh, spur ourselves on to spiritual growth, use them for opportunities to witness and be a testimony. And we pray that you would give a, us a vision of how our temporal lives fit within the pattern of eternity. And we pray that as we study tonight, we'd be challenged with what Peter says in 1 Peter 4. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. And while you're doing that, and while we are getting ready to study in our passage, I wanted to mention one of the things that we did in our trip to Washington, D.C. last week. Uh, On Thursday night, we had a tour of the Capitol building conducted by uh, Representative Louis Gohmert. Uh, Louis is the representative from the 1st Congressional District of Texas, which is basically East Texas. goes up from just north of Houston. It would cover, I think, Livingston. I'm not sure where it ends. Uh, this Ted Post seat is just south of that one, and that's the election that Dan Crenshaw is running in right now for, for that uh, particular seat, and I pray that uh, he will get that. I've gotten to know him, and I think he's going to do a, would do a great job. But that runoff, by the way, is on May 22nd. So if you're in that district, which is the second congressional district, that involves like the Woodlands and Kingwood and Lake Houston, that area up north, some down here into Spring Branch and into Memorial. That runoff um, is on Tuesday the 22nd of of May, and so the 18th, the 13th, or 14th to the 18th that week is the uh, uh, early voting. So that's in um, a week from this Monday, that this coming Monday will be the runoff. So uh, we need to be involved. We need people who truly understand the issues that are facing this country, and that's hard because there's so many who talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk or vote the vote when it comes to uh, Congress. And so Louis is one of those rare souls in Congress who's a solid believer. He is a solid constitutionalist. That doesn't mean he gets everything right. Nobody does. I heard, I think it was Dennis Prager talking on the radio the other day, said, said I don't even agree with myself 100% of the time said, too many people think they need to vote for somebody they agree with 100% of the time. He said, if somebody agrees with you 80%, they're your friend, they're not your enemy. So we need to have not let some areas where there's disagreement cause us to either not vote or to vote for the wrong person. Now, when we went through the tour, and I've been through the tour of the... uh, of the Capitol building before, one of the things that is impressive is when you go into the rotunda, and in the rotunda there are eight large uh, oil paintings that are uh, along the walls, and they are, their dimensions are 40 feet by 20 feet. Four of these depict scenes related to the founding of the United States of America, but The other four focus on the foundation of the colonies, the settlement of North America, that which became the United States of America. And we live in a world today when the message from those who wish to change America from what it was and what it should be and what it was founded to be to something that is more akin to uh, Marxism and socialism uh, from those people want us to think that that Christianity was just a footnote in the history of the United States, whereas it, in reality, Christianity, a biblical, theistic worldview, was at the heart and center of the founding of America. In fact, missionary activity was at the heart and center of the establishment of colonies throughout uh, North North America. So the first of these of these four uh, paintings is that of Christopher Columbus. 
who on October 12, 1492, discovered the Western Hemisphere. He landed on a small island called that he named San Salvador, which means Holy Savior. I don't think that's a Buddhist name. I don't think that's a uh, Muslim name. I, I don't think that any New Age theosophist would have come up with that. That is clearly a Christian name, somebody who is focused on the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. And from all that I've come to understand about Columbus, I believe he was a Christian. Now, remember, at this time in the history of Western Christianity, you still have one church, the Roman Catholic Church. It's, this is 1492. It's not for another 25 years that Martin Luther will nail the 95 theses on the church of the the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany, and start the Protestant Reformation. So uh, Columbus and many of the other Spanish explorers always carried priests with them, and they uh, came to uh, America with a desire to also expand the gospel. They thought they were going to the Far East, but they ended up finding there was something in between. And when you look at this picture, you, we get, we're in the... By the end of the year, we'll have all new projectors. Things will be much brighter. But what you see is that um, I have a cabin boy over here kneeling. You have another man behind him. You can't make it out uh, real well up there. And he is a, a penitent mutineer uh, that was on the ship. Uh, but the men are recognizing the sovereignty of the of Aragon and Castile is indicated by the flags of uh, Spain. Those were the families of Ferdinand and Isabella who joined together in Spain. And he's claiming the land for his Spanish patrons. But he has taken off his hat, which is on the ground, in a show of humility, and he is looking toward the heavens. And so this is a recognition that also, I believe, in the back there is a, a cross, I believe, back in the back here. So this is a sign uh, that Christianity was very much a part of Columbus's uh, trip to the Western Hemisphere. Now, this painting advances things about... 50 years to the discovery of the Mississippi River by the Spanish uh, conquistador and explorer Hernando de Soto. He lived from 1500 to 1452, so he was just born nine year, uh, eight years after uh, Columbus. And he died about a year after this event portrayed in the, in the picture took place. He is uh, depicted as arriving at a point below Natchez on the Mississippi River. And he had, they have had a skirmish with the Indians the day before and defeated them. And his troops are coming in, and they are uh, going to have peace with the Indians. The chief here holds a peace pipe. And what you see down here in the corner, and you can make it out, is a what? A cross. And... Uh, Holding up the cross, you have a uh, a Franciscan uh, monk there, and he is praying. And so this shows again that the thinking of what they were doing had to do with missionary activity and taking the gospel uh, to this new country. Now the next picture is a picture of the Pilgrims who are not talked about that much anymore, and, and uh, if you, the, what I hear is that in many schools, the reason that they came is not accurately presented. They came to get away from religious persecution at this particular time. In uh, this is 1620, so we've advanced in time from about 80 years from DeSoto. And now we are do, dealing with Protestants who have left England during a uh, rough time after the um, after the Protestant Reformation has taken hold in England. You had some difficult times with Henry VIII, and then when Henry died, uh, his son Edward became king for only a couple of years. He was a Protestant, and then you had 
uh, he was succeeded by his sister Mary, who was a Roman Catholic and had over 300 uh, evangelical Protestants burned at the stake in uh, in England, for which she received the nickname Bloody Mary. It's not a drink. It is a woman who is the Queen of England. And she uh, got that because she killed so many. One of the great archbishops of Canterbury who served under the Henry VIII was a man by the name of Thomas Cranmer. And his story has always stuck with me. Cran- Cranmer, as, arch- as archbishop, uh, wrote the, what la- later became the articles uh, at the foundation of the Anglican Church. And what uh, transpired was that when, when Mary became queen, she had him arrested. They tortured him on the rack. They did a number of other horrible things to him. And finally, uh, on the threat of death of his family, he recanted. And then um, uh, they decided to kill him anyway. And so then he recanted of his recantation. And they took him out and they tied him to the stake and they lit the fire under him and he held out his right hand which had signed the recantation and he rejected his hand for what he had done and it caught fire and burned and he sang there on that stake hymns to the glory of God until he died from smoke inhalation. That's a great story. We don't have too many like that anymore. The Pilgrims were a separatist Baptist group that were under persecution from the Anglicans. They were sort of like Puritans. The Puritans wanted to stay within the Anglican church, but they wanted to purify it to remove the vestiges of Roman Catholicism, the images and the crucifixes and the different things such and the vestments and things like that and simplify and the separatist Baptists went a step further they wanted to completely separate from the Church of England and so this group had left with their pastor John Robinson who is uh, depicted in this uh, scene here uh, praying he is the one here to the here this is um, uh, William Brewster, he has the open Bible in front of him, and he is looking toward heaven and praying toward heaven. And then uh, to his right is Governor Carver, who's kneeling, and then, or to his, would be his left, and then to his left is John Robinson, who is the pastor of the group. His arms are extended, and he is looking uh, heavenly. This depicts the pilgrims on the deck of the ship Speedwell, who was the sister ship to the Mayflower, on July 22, 1620, before they departed from Delfts Haven, Holland, for North America. Uh, First, they sailed to Southampton to join the Mayflower when it was discovered that the uh, Speedwell was not seaworthy, so they all got onto the Mayflower, and it took them five months before they landed and established Plymouth Colony in Massachusetts. Again, what we see here is that the the colonists that came to America were focused on God. They were focused on a mission from the Scripture that Christianity was at the heart of, of their motivation to come to America. And then in this scene, which is approximately the same time, Uh, maybe just uh, a few years earlier, this is the baptism of Pocahontas. Just forget whatever Disney tried to tell you and whatever wrong things you were taught in school about Pocahontas and John Smith. She married John Rolfe, who is this man standing behind her and looking on as she is being baptized. Now, this isn't a baptism by immersion. It's sprinkling, and as... uh, as Louis said last week, just a little dabble, do you? But she is being baptized. Her Christian name that she took was Rebecca, 
which shows an emphasis which was typical of the Puritans of this era. They loved the Old Testament. They loved the stories about the Israelites, and they named their children biblical names from the Old Testament. So she took the name uh, Rebecca. And onlookers here, it's in the foreground here, you have, um, you have her sister, you have uh, an uncle, you have her, her brother over here watching on. And, and it was this, her conversion, she's the first American Indian who became a Christian and converted to Christian, or the first who con- publicly converted to Christianity. And this sealed the friendship between uh, the Indians in the Tidewater area of Virginia and these new uh, uh, Anglo settlers that were coming. But, you know, this is what's depicted in the Capitol building. These are not just secular scenes. These are all scenes to de- designed to depict the Christian heritage and foundation of the United States of America, something that is being seriously attacked today, and it has been since the late 1800s and early 1900s, there was a real shift that occurred. Now, what else was going on at that time in our history? You have the influence of Darwinism, the influence of Marxism, you have the influence of of socialism and sociology and all of the speakers there, and there's a shift to liberalism in theology. All of that takes place then, and so what happens is now they go back and they reshape and retell the story of America, it it becomes fake history. And if you studied history in public school or uh, secular university any time since the 1920s, you were probably taught a lot of fake history. And Christianity was deleted from the story. But this is the true story. You go back and read the original documents, and this will let you know. So we need to continue to be in prayer for our country and pray for more leaders like Louis Gohmert uh, to be elected. Now, let's go to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, we're in a great passage. Just so much here, so much to uh, evaluate and talk about. And last time we looked at uh, the conclusion to the previous section in verse 6 which focused us on the end game, that we are all going to be evaluated, unbelievers at the, judge, at the great white throne judgment and believers at the judgment seat of Christ. So with a view toward the end of all things in 1 Peter 4, 7, we need to be focused and live today in light of eternity. That's 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all, but the end of all things is at hand, Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And last time I talked about what this meant and this phrase, the end of all things. And it is a term that shows up in different contexts. But at this context, it is related to these judgments that are coming. So it's not talking about one particular situation or another. But it is near, and it is near because of its proximity to the church age as the last major dispensation. It will be followed by the seven years of the tribulation and then the millennial kingdom. So in this chart, we have the present church age that ends with the rapture of the church. Then there will be an interlude, or that's probably not the best word to use. There'll be a transition period before the tribulation begins. It begins according to Daniel uh, 9, 24 and following to refer to uh, the signing of a peace treaty, a covenant between the prince who is to come, that is the Antichrist, and Israel. It will last seven years. And the midpoint is when the abomination of desolation occurs, and this tribulation period ends when the Lord Jesus Christ returns at the second coming. And so that is followed by a series of judgments, the judgments on those who survived the tribulation period. There are Gentiles who survive. They are judged at the sheep and the goat judgment. There are uh, Jews that survive, and they will be judged. Those are spelled out at the end of Matthew chapter 25, 24 and Matthew 25, 1 to 13 with the judgment of the ten virgins. That all depicts these different judgments. And then the Lord Jesus Christ will establish his reign on the earth for a thousand years in the millennial kingdom. 
I went through various issues related to the order of events at the end of the millennial kingdom. There will be a judgment, the great white throne judgment. All unbelievers will be sent to the lake of fire. Then there's a creation of a new heavens and the new earth, and we go into eternity. So that's that background. The end is talking about judgment that's coming. It's near because it all has a nearness in proximity to the church age. So whether you're at the beginning of the church age or into the church age, and there's 2,000 years at least, we're all near to that judgment. Then the main command that we find in verse 7 is to be serious and watchful in our prayers. And the first word is this verb, sophroneo, which means to be in your right mind. Basically, it means to be focused. It needs to be uh, not conformed to the world, to be clear-headed, to be thinking in a, a biblical manner. And watchful is, again, uh, not so much the word to watch for something as it, it's the word nafo, which means to be sober and self-control. So the emphasis here has to do with clear thinking. And that is part of prayer, that prayer is not some emotion, it's not some mystical uh, uh, insight into God, it's not emptying your mind of all thoughts, that, that prayer is something that is focused, it's related to thought, it's related to understanding the truth of God's Word. And so both of these words, sophroneo, and emphasizes clear thinking, objective thinking. It's often, um, often the word that's used is prudence, which is the opposite of something that is based on ignorance or frivolity or some sort of mythology or fake news. It is a type of thought that is careful, discerning, judicious, sensible, and shrewd. Okay, so that involves somebody who's learning the truth of God's Word and being shaped by it. Romans 12.3, following Romans 12.2, which says that we are not to be conformed to the zeitgeist, the spirit of this age, but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And then Paul says in the next verse that we are to think soberly, accurately, Correctly, That's the idea there that come because our thinking has been transformed, uh, Romans 12, 2. 2 Corinthians 5, 13 again says we are to be of a sound mind. Titus 2, 6, where young men are to be of sound mind, sober-minded. This is all the same word. And uh, though we have in uh, to be serious in First Peter four seven, so, so the Christian life, as I've taught so many times, is about thinking. It's not about feeling. Feelings follow right thinking, but it's primarily focused on right thinking, and that comes from a study of the Word of God. Then we have the word nafo, often translated sober, which in our culture often carries the connotations of not being under the influence of drugs or alcohol. That's not the idea here, but the idea here is not being under wrong influences, the influences of human viewpoint, the influences of worldly thinking, uh, but to be, uh, has the idea of self, self-control, also a word that's been used uh, once before in First Peter one thirteen, gird up the loins of your mind. Again, it is focusing on discipline. Girding up your loins, that's, that's an athletic term. Uh, back then they wore uh, typically everyday clothes were robes. And if you were going to run a foot race, that would get in the way. So if you would gird up your robes, you would pull them up. You would tie them tight so they wouldn't get in your way. You wouldn't trip over them. And so it's called, it, it basically means to get rid of all of the hindrances and distractions in your thinking. Be sober. Again, think objectively. Uh, so all of this has to do with this Christian growth, Christian life. We are to think biblically, think accurately. 
1 Peter 4, 7, our passage, and again it's repeated in 1 Peter 5, 8, to be sober, to be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion. It's also used in passages like 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, let us watch and be sober, 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, let us be of the day, be sober. All this has to do is watch. It's all based on accurate knowledge. Second uh, Timothy four five. Be watchful. That's a translation of the same word. Be sober in all things. In other words, think objectively about every area of life. So the command is to be to to be clear headed, to be in your right mind without distractions, uh, objective in your thinking, watchful because you know what to look for, with or for the purpose of prayer. That's the idea in that last uh, last phrase, for the purpose of prayer. So prayer is preceded by making sure you're in right relationship with the Lord through confession and second, thinking objectively in terms of the Word of God. And then we come to the next verse, verse 8, where Peter says, And above all things... Have fervent love for one another. Why? For love will cover, it means to hide or conceal, it's not going to expose or talk about, a multitude of sins. So this brings up the critical teaching on the New Testament about love. It is described as a fervent love. Uh, The term fervent love is a term that uh, fervent sometimes is, and it, one, one word that's used is passionate. Both of those terms carry an emotional overtone that isn't really part of this, this word in the Greek. Uh, the Greek word, the literal meaning meant to stretch something out. And it came to refer to something that was um, resolute, tenacious, unflinching, unwavering has the idea of being earnest or passionate. Now, if you look the word passionate up, one of the definitions has to do with with the sense of an outburst of emotion. He just got, he suddenly became very passionate about something, becomes very emotional. But the other definitions talk about uh, an enthusiasm for something. An enthusiasm May, may have some a- aspects of emotion with it, but it's not, and that's not the sense here. You are somebody who is enthusiastic about their hobby. They're called an enthusiast. It's because they spend a lot of time studying it, learning about it. Uh, they spend a lot of time maybe making something. Maybe they're, they're, they enjoy woodworking. Some enjoy uh, firearms, others enjoy athletics, but what do they do? They spend a lot of time learning about that which they are interested in. That's called also called a passion, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're emotional about it. And that's the sense of this word here, is that we have a love that is focused and that's a priority and that we are concerned about about other people. It's the opposite, as we'll see, of being self-absorbed, which is the natural orientation of our sin nature. This isn't the first time we've seen this, as we have studied here in First Peter. Just as we looked back and we saw in, um, what was that, First Peter one thirteen, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, in 1 Peter one twenty two, back at the beginning, we see the uh, statement by Peter, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, uh, through the Spirit, uh, obeying the truth through the Spirit, that I think at the very least belong, uh, is a reference to the gospel and trusting in Christ as Savior if it goes beyond that into the spiritual life, then what he is saying is that you have continued to grow spiritually after your salvation. And now he is saying, since you have purified your souls by obeying the truth and sincere love of the brethren, 
love one another fervently. That's the command. So he's picking that up again here in 1 Peter 4, 8. It's the same word, the same terminology that we have uh, in 1 Peter 4, 8. It is a priority here. We are to love each other in this in this fervent manner, in uh, an earnestness. It is to be something that is uh, reflects an intentionality on our on our part. I ended last time with a story about the uh, Southwest plane that had the uh, engine problem and it threw off part of the engine and it hit a window and a woman was partially uh, sucked out of that window and that woman's name was Jennifer Reardon and she uh, she did lose her life in that incident but according to a According to a news story, and I want to read it to you again, the lesser told story has been that of the hero cowboy Tim McGinty, who risked his own life to pull passenger Jennifer Reardon back in the plane after the mother of two was sucked out of a window that burst amidst the engine explosion. McGinty, sporting a cowboy hat and a bandage around his arm, desperately tried to pull Reardon back inside the airplane alone, but ended up needing help from a fellow passenger and firefighter to fight the extreme suction working against them. A guy helped, and we got her pulled in, and they tried to resuscitate her, said McGinty. The firefighter, Andrew Needham of Salina, Texas, and a nurse performed CPR on Reardon, but were sadly unable to revive her. According to McGinney's wife, Kristen, it is just like her husband to be the first on the scene to help a fellow stranger. My husband loves God and believes our purpose here is to love fiercely and to serve others, she told USA Today. Some heroes wear capes, but mine wears a cowboy hat. Now, I like that phrase that she said, to love fiercely. One of the things we see in that example, which is true, is, is we see this is not an emotional act. Too many people in our culture think love is emotion. Love is, biblical love is not an emotion. Christian love is not an emotion. It is a mental attitude. It fits with all the language that we see surrounding this, this passage. It is, um, it is an Love is something that is intentional, and it is something that is proactive. See, some people think the idea of love is, well, I'm just not going to have any mental attitude sins against people. I'm not going to be angry with them. I'm not going to hate them. I'm not going to be jealous or envious. And so we, we're not going to have any of these negative things. But what, we, what we're going to see in the Scripture is the Scripture doesn't present Christian love as being passive like that. It is something that is proactive, something that gets involved with people. It's not necessarily an emotion. It is a mental attitude where you are putting other people first. You're not living on the basis of self-love and self-absorption. As such, it is embodied in the act of every hero. Jesus said, "No man has greater love for his friend than he give his life than he than that he gives his life for them." That is an act of self-sacrifice. It is not self-absorption. It is not necessary. Emotion may accompany it, but it is not something that is that is emotional. It is not the kind of butterflies that young puppy lovers have in their uh, stomachs when they start getting all involved with somebody uh, from the opposite sex. This is a distinctive kind of love, and we need to take some time to remind ourselves that this is central to the Christian life. We begin to develop this as a young baby believer. Just like when you were a little baby as you grew through those formative years and you went through your terrible twos into your threes and fours, you began to develop a, a love for your parents. It was the love of a three- or four-year-old. 
It wasn't the love of a 30-year-old or a 50-year-old or a 60-year-old for your parents. It's the love of, that a child has for their parents. And then as you grew and matured and you spent time with them, you really got to know your parents as you matured, that love matured. So that this is the same kind of thing that happens in our Christian life. We begin to love God and we begin to love others in little ways. It's part of our grace orientation <coughs> part of our grace orientation toward God I mean toward others and our love for God and that eventually matures to where we have a genuine love for other people I remember when I was a young man and 18 19 20 years old working as a counselor at Camp Penile that one of the things that that we were always reminded of as counselors and that we would remind the high school kids of as they're working with the younger kids is that it's real easy to become attracted to the good kids, to the popular kids. It's real easy to want to hang out as a counselor with the kids that are cool because you like them. They're great to be with and also to hang out with other counselors that are cool. But it's difficult to hang out with those that have problems, to spend time with those who are physically unattractive or physically unlovely, and to love them and to be a picture of the love of Christ for them. That takes a maturity and a and a realization that that's not the right way to do it. We always tend to be attracted to those who are more socially acceptable. They look good. They act good. They're more popular. But we always need to be focused on many of the others as well. We're to look beyond the surface and look at the soul. That is what God does. So we are to love one another. That's a pretty broad term. It refers to all other believers. Uh, fervently, those who are carnal and those who are walking with the Lord, those who are attractive, those who have problems. We are to love one another without exception with this level of uh, passion, earnestness, focused intentionality. Now, to understand this, we have to look at the fact that 13 times in the New Testament, God thought it was necessary to remind us that we are to love one another. 13 times, not once, not twice, 13 times this is stated over and over again, and a number of times, as I pointed out with these uh, statements here, in the Upper Room Discourse. Now, remember, the Upper Room Discourse is the last instruction that Jesus gave his disciples uh, while they're still in the Upper Room before they went to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's, the, he is meeting with them. He's beginning to teach them now about church age doctrine. He's taught them about uh, confession. He's teaching them in chapter 14 uh, several things, but there he introduces the fact that another comforter, that is the Holy Spirit, is going to come and indwell every believer, and that will be the source of power. In John chapter 15, he begins to teach about the importance of abiding with Christ, that is that ongoing fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ that later on John describes it as walking in the light. Paul describes it as walking in the truth. All of this describes that Christian life. It is abiding in Christ. Before he gets to that, before they uh, leave the upper room, Jesus is going to give them a new commandment. That's John thirteen thirty four and 35. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, by what? By loving one another. All will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, he doesn't say that's how they're going to know you're a believer, because not all believers are disciples. But a disciple is a growing, maturing believer 
who wants to apply, to learn and apply what Jesus is teaching. And Jesus says that the ultimate sign of this, the ultimate apologetic for Christianity in the life of an individual believer is love for one another. It can't be manufactured. It is something that God the Holy Spirit produces in us. We can't uh, make this happen on our own apart from the Holy Spirit. Uh, how do we know that? Galatians five twenty one to 23, for the fruit of the Spirit is, first thing, love. It's produced by God the Holy Spirit. So uh, this is the new command, that we are to love one another. And then he repeats it in John fifteen twelve. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And then in John fifteen seventeen, these things I command you that you love one another. Now that's only uh, four verses uh, and let me see, one, two, three, four, five times out of 13, there's eight other times love one another is mentioned in the New Testament. So this brings up an important topic, and that is what does the Bible teach about Christian love? That Christian love is uniquely Christian. It is not like something that is produced by an unbeliever. There are a lot of unbelievers who have a type of love for other people. But this is something that is unique and distinctive because it's produced by God the Holy Spirit as a result of studying the Word, applying the Word, and walking by the Spirit. So we have Jesus' command to love in the upper room. The word is agape. The ver that's the noun. The verb is agapao. It's the broadest term for love that you have in the Greek language. It is not necessarily an emotive word for close intimacy. That would be the other main word that we have in Greek, which is uh, phileo, or philos type of love. That is a love of the closer intimacy, friendship um, type of relationship. Uh, agapao is a broader type of love. Let me give you an example. John 3.16. For God loved the world in this way, that he gave his only begotten Son. Now, who's the object of his love? The world. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his love toward us. The object is us, which in that context really is all of mankind. So we have the object of agapao love being unbelievers. God demonstrated his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, that is unsaved, Christ died for us. So the object of agapao love it are unbelievers. But when you get into uh, Romans uh, 3, let me, let's just, Revelation 3, let's just turn there for a minute. I want to make sure I quoted it precisely, correctly. Roman, Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Now, many people think this has to do with uh, inviting Jesus into your heart to be saved or inviting Jesus into your life to be saved. This has nothing to do with getting saved. Phase one, justification. How do we know that? Well, first of all, this is a letter to a church. Churches comprise, or maybe unbelievers there, but it's assumed that most of them are believers. And in fact, in Revelation uh, 3.19, we read, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. That tells you right away two things. Number one, in this short postcard... God, or Jesus Christ, is rebuking and disciplining this congregation. That's because they're doing things wrong. They need to be straightened out. The second thing we know is it says, as many as I love, and it's not agapao, it's phileo. Why is that important? Because God only has, as the, the scriptures only express God's 
phileo love for believers. It's a more intimate love. You will never find God, you'll never find the word phileo used in a context with God as the subject and unbelievers as the recipient of that love. God only has uh, phileo love for believers. So that tells us, as many as I love, that is those who are part of my family, this intimate love. And if you are part of my family, like a father loves his children, Hebrews chapter 12, and and disciplines them, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. That's a knock to let me in because you've repented. It's not talking about salvation or going to heaven. It's talking about coming in and supping and dining with him. That is fellowship. Uh, Jesus is being excluded from the church. There's no fellowship with with the Lord, and he is knocking so that they will uh, let him in. So, this word in John thirteen thirty four is agapao. It is a broad word, a broad word for love, and it does not imply an intimacy with the object of love. There are many people we run into every day for whom we do not have, will not have, cannot have, will not develop a phileo type of love. You will meet people who are uh, checkers at the check stand at the grocery store. You will meet pharmacists at the pharmacy. You will meet uh, people online when are on the telephone when you're calling customer service with Comcast or Apple or whomever, and you have no personal knowledge of these people at all, and yet you are to love them as well. And that comes because of your mental attitude. And if you're all upset over the problem you're having with your computer or your phone or whatever it is, then when they don't answer right or they're slow or whatever it may be, then then you're just not going to respond very well and they're not going to think you're much of a Christian. So that gets a little convicting, so we'll move on. This is what Jesus is talking about. As believers, there is a transformation. 1 John 2.7 refers to this. In 1 John 2.7, and remember, 1 John, the epistle of 1 John, is a commentary, an exposition, and an expansion on what Jesus taught in John 13 through 16. It is John's reflection as a mature apostle. He's close to late mid-80s to 90. And he has been thinking about what Jesus taught him since he was like 20 years old. He was the youngest of the disciples. He was probably 18 or 19 when Jesus called him as a disciple. And so for for 60, 70 years, he's been thinking about what Jesus taught in the upper room. So 1 John is his mature reflection, expansion, and development of what Jesus taught in the upper room. So the language is very, very similar. It uses a lot of the same words, sounds a lot like Jesus. So in 1 John 2, 7, he says, Behold, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. Okay, so what are we talking about here? You have, he, he's not writing to a, a totally new commandment, but an old one that you've had from the beginning. What's that beginning? That's beginning is from the beginning of the church age. John's writing First John. It's somewhere around uh, maybe, um, maybe 90 to 95 A.D., something like that. And so this is new. The church has heard about loving one another many, many times. But so it's not a new commandment. It's an old one. But he's not talking about the Old Testament at this point. He's talking about what Jesus said as a new commandment in John 13. From the beginning of the church age, that's the idea there. Now, there is an old commandment. That old commandment is the one that is in the Mosaic Law. But there is something different about the command that's in the Mosaic Law. 
The command in the Mosaic Law is in Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people. So that's the negative. No mental attitude sins, but there's a positive. The negative is you're not going to hate them, you're not going to be jealous, you're not going to be envious, you're not going to hold a grudge or seek revenge. The positive is you will love your neighbor as yourself. You will love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this particular uh, command or reference to Leviticus 19.18 is found in two other key places in the New Testament. And it's interesting that in both of these places, you have an epistle that is written in the context of dealing with Jews. The first is in Galatians 5.14. The problem in Galatia was these Judaizers that were coming along behind Paul and telling these recent converts that they needed to obey the law in order to get saved. And if they didn't get circumcised or uh, apply the law, then they probably weren't saved to begin with. So they were introducing legalism uh, into these congregations that Paul had founded. And as Paul Uh, expresses the idea in Galatians 5.14, the importance of their love for one another. He says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. James quotes it again in James 2.8. He calls it the royal law. However, if you are fulfilling the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. James is like Peter. He's writing to the uh, Jewish background believers who are scattered uh, among the uh, uh, in the diaspora. Okay, so both of those have to do, but there's some significant and striking differences between Leviticus 19.18 and Galatians 5.14 and James 2.8. Okay, they're, they're different, and I want to focus on that. Uh, this commandment, next point, this commandment, in Leviticus 19.18, was addressed to both unbelievers and believers. It's in the Mosaic Law. Not everybody in Israel was a believer. Not everyone was regenerate. Not everyone was uh, had yet reached uh, faith in the Old Testament promise of a future Messiah. So, But all of them were to be obedient to the Mosaic Law, to the Torah. So all of them were to love their neighbor as themselves. So one of the first differences has to do with who the command is, is, uh, to whom the command is addressed. In John 13, 34 and 35, Jesus is talking to believers only. They are to love one another. That's a term that relates only to believers. All the way through, loving one another doesn't mean unbelievers. It's a higher standard for those in the body. Leviticus 19.18, so it's addressed to both believers and unbelievers. In the Old Covenant, the object of their love was neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, your next-door neighbor may be may be Muslim, your next-door neighbor may be a Buddhist, your next-door neighbor may be an atheist, your next-door neighbor may be a, a Wiccan practitioner. Uh, who knows what your next-door neighbor might be in this world? Uh, but you are to love your neighbor, whether they are a believer or an unbeliever, as yourself. So there's a point of comparison there. You're to love them as you love yourself. So it's important to understand what that means, and we'll eventually get into that, and we'll see what neighbor means in just a minute. Uh, But the object is your neighbor who could be an unbeliever or a believer. That term neighbor is then further defined by the Lord, our Lord, in the parable of the Good Samaritan. As anyone who comes into your periphery, it may be the checker at the check stand at the grocery store. It may be somebody who uh, is in the car in front of you who just cut you off. Uh, it may be somebody who is uh, at, uh, at some office where you're doing business. 
You never know who this is. This could be anybody, and you may not know them, and you may never know their name. In that sense, it's impersonal. A personal love is when you get to know somebody, and there's a personal connection. But there's a lot of people we deal with, and we we never know them. If we learn their name, we may forget it 10 minutes later, uh, but we're to love them the same way. So but what we see in this illustration with the Good Samaritan is that love is proactive. It's not passive. So let's turn. We'll wrap up with this tonight in Luke chapter 10. One of the things I always like to do is to point out that when you think of certain certain key teachings in Scripture, that there should be a connection in your mind with certain episodes or parables or um, events that have occurred, for example, like in the Old Testament, so that you can, those stories, those parables put flesh on these ideas. So we're in Luke chapter 10, and Jesus is talking about what love is. Uh, We're told in verse 25, Behold, a certain lawyer, this would be a, 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 someone who was uh, an expert in the Mosaic law. He is probably a Pharisee uh, because the Pharisees were conservative. They spent more time on the law. And so this Torah expert stands up to test Jesus and says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, notice he answers the question with a question. He doesn't just jump in there to show how much he knows. He's going to ask a question to get the the lawyer to think more about what he is asking. He says, what is written in your law? What is your reading of it? So the lawyer answered him and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And even among the rabbis, they understood this was a summary of all of the Ten Commandments, the first four dealing with loving God, the remainder, the other six, loving others. And so Jesus says to him, you have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. Now Jesus isn't saying that's how you get saved. He's talking about that's under the Mosaic law. That's how you, a saved person can experience the abundant life of the Old Testament is by obeying the law. That's what's said all the way through the law and also in Deuteronomy, that if you do these things, you will, you will have life. It's the wise man who pays attention to Scripture, and that's what you find in Proverbs. The wise man who listens to Scripture will have, will have life. That there's a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. So if you di- are, are disobedient to Scripture, you're foolish, then the end result is going to be uh, miserable life and self-destruction. Now this lawyer, though, wants to justify himself to Jesus, and he says, well, who's my neighbor? See, they had a lot of ways in which they would redefine terms so you could escape having to really obey what Scripture says. And so Jesus then tells him a parable. He says, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, that's a distance of, I believe it's about 14 or 15 miles from Jerusalem to Jericho, and it's downhill, and you drop from about 3,300 feet above sea level in Jerusalem down to about 1,200 feet below sea level at Jericho. So so you really have to have the brakes on or you're going to just roll downhill uh, for about 14 miles. So this man is is walking down that that highway from Jerusalem to Jericho, and there are some thieves who ambush him. He fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, so they beat him up, they, they assault him, and they leave him half dead. Now, Jesus says, is the story by chance, the next person walking down that road is a Levitical priest. And when he saw this guy lying by the side of the road, bloodied and unconscious and stripped naked, instead of going over to see what he could do to help, 
the Levite crosses to the other side of the road and keeps right on going. Likewise, a Levite, so you've gone from the priest to just a, a, a Levite. He's a member of the tribe of Levi, but he's not a functioning priest. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived in the place, looked and passed by on the other side. So they're like, I don't want to get involved. Uh, it's somebody else's business. But a certain Samaritan, now you have to understand that Samaritans came about because after the uh, destruction of the uh, northern kingdom in 722, the policy of the Assyrians was to redistribute and repo- and 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 move the populations from def- from uh, conquered people. So they would round up all the Jews in the northern kingdom, and they would move them and resettle them in other areas of the Assyrian Empire. And then when they conquered other people, they would move them in. That way they would break up these ethnic groups and they would uh, repopulate, they would intermarry, and so it would break down those ethnic distinctions. So the Samaritans were sort of a half-breeds. You think back, you've seen movies and films and westerns that you know where people look down on those who were of uh, mixed ethnicity and um, a combination of different races. And that's how it was for the Jews. They really had, uh, they hated Samaritans more than a a Ku Klux Klansman would hate uh, an African-American. They despised them so much that they wouldn't even walk through Samaria to go from uh, Jerusalem to Galilee. They would cross over to the uh, other side of the Jordan and walk up through Perea and then cross back over once they got past Samaria. They would have nothing to do with the Samaritans. It couldn't be a worse person that that you could come up with. But Jesus says this Samaritan is going to exemplify love. A certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So these Jews who are from descendants from Abraham, they won't have anything to do with him, but the Samaritan, who's a half-breed, they're not going to put up, he's not going to stand by and watch this guy suffer. So he goes to him, he bandages his wounds, pours oil on the wounds and wine, and he um, puts him on his own animal and takes him to an inn and takes care of him. So what we see here is his love is proactive. It's not just passive. I'm not going to have mental attitude sins towards this guy. He's going to go and do everything he can, even at personal cost, to make sure this guy is taken care of. He treats him as another human being created in the image and likeness of God. The next day when he departed, he leaves the uh, man who's been uh, uh, ambushed, leaves him there. He leaves some money with him, gives it to the innkeeper to take care of his bill. And he says, whatever else you spend on him, when I come back, I will repay you. Now, Jesus then says, so which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? He who showed mercy on him. See, that is grace in action. That's what mercy is. It's grace in action to people who may not deserve it, to people who are looked down upon, to people who are uh, not who are the unlovely. So that's the picture that we have of how the believer is to love his neighbor. That's from the Old Testament. The standards higher, as we'll see next time, for those who are Christians who are to love one another. Father, thank you for this time to study this evening. Help us to understand how we fail and fall short in this area of loving one another. May God the Holy Spirit challenge us and give us clarity of thought where we need to apply the word in uh, relationships to uh, to express your love toward others. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.